legalizefreedom.com. Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Listen without limits. Unchain your brain. Change your thinking. Change your life. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host, Greg Moffat. My guest today is James Tunney, and he joins us to discuss his book, Empire of Scientism, The Dispiriting Conspiracy and Inevitable Tyranny of Scientocracy. We are in danger of ceding power to a centralized cadre of bureaucrats and billionaires who assume authority to exercise power as they wish, believing that they know better. The materialist paradigm has given rise to an ideology of scientism, an idolatry of technology, and an obsession with control and surveillance that is shared by communists and capitalists alike. Scientism is the expansion of science beyond appropriate boundaries to become an exclusive dogma. Hitherto separate and competing forces are now coalescing in a community based on the application of science to governance. Some scientists have described this movement towards a scientific world government, and yet those who protest are called delusional. The emergent empire of scientism will be hostile to religion, spirituality and human rights, and will promote transhumanism, posthumanism, and represent the demise of homo sapiens. This is the end game as conceived by certain mainstream scientists and their sycophants. Unless we wake up and embrace our spiritual consciousness, we are doomed to suffer totalitarian rule before our final demise. Hello and welcome, James, and thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Thank you very much for the opportunity, Greg. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Uh, Today, James, we're going to be talking about science and when that spills over into scientism. We're going to talk a little bit about technocracy and about transhumanism. Some of these terms may be unfamiliar to listeners, but we'll get to those very shortly. I have said a little bit about them in my recorded introduction. Uh, Before we dive into our talk, uh, for listeners who don't know, just tell them a little bit about your background and your work in general. Uh, I come from Dublin. I studied law, did three degrees in law, qualified as a barrister. Uh, did a master's degree in London because I was interested in the the frontier areas of law as, as they were then, communication technology, competition law, or antitrust law, and uh, subjects that were international because it was very clear that there was a process of international regulation. And I followed that. I took a couple of years off, went to Spain. I was intended to paint and teach English. And I came back to Scotland. Uh, I worked as a lecturer, a senior lecturer, for about 15 years. And I, I also lectured in other places around the world as visiting lecturers, uh, professor in, in France, Germany, China. And I, I would have done some consultancy work for international bodies, including the United Nations Development Project pro, Program and other bodies like that. Uh, and then I decided to give it up. Uh, it was time for a change in direction, to use the other half of my brain, became a stay-at-home father, uh, concentrated on painting, which I'd wanted to do, and uh, as well as that, to to write. So in the, co- in the course of that process of spiritual evolution, 
became very interested in mysticism and began to write about mysticism as, as, as if you like, the light side of, of my work. The darker side is my concerns about a tendency towards totalitarianism associated with, techn uh, with technology. And I suppose that's, that's where I am now, uh, those, those two paths, looking at the, a positive way forward and looking at threatening things uh, around us. Most, most of us in the, in the modern world, particularly those, for the most part, lucky enough to live in industrialised societies, will credit a lot of that, a lot of the good things and benefits that we have had the last uh, century or so to, to science, you know, the direct or um, indirect products of science and technology. And from the Enlightenment and the scientific revolution through to the Industrial Revolution, these are uh, several centuries of uh, what most people regard as progress that has brought us to the world where we are now. And of course, we're speaking here early in 2021, and um, we've lived through the last almost year and a half of the uh, coronavirus pandemic. And of course, science has been leading the way in the response to that. And so we find ourselves right now, because we're, we're trying to find various ways, each of us in their own way, and, and governments and non-governmental organizations all trying to find ways to respond to this. And mostly it's through the lens of science. It's follow the science. This is the thing that's going to lead us through this and out the other side and eventually overcome this threat. However, um, there's more to all of this than meets the eye. And science is not the a single monolithic entity, black and white picture that a lot of people believe it to be. It's not an unalloyed good. And this is where the term scientism comes in. And this may or may not be new uh, to listeners, but it's, if you know, if, if people haven't heard it before, well, it, it does what it says on the tin and it is more or less pejorative. Uh, you know, I, I always said if, if you hear something being called an ism, then that should start alarm bells ringing, basically. So yes. again, I said a word about this in my recorded introduction, but if you could just give us your take on that. So if somebody says to you, James, scientism, what is this? You know, because surely science is good, isn't it? So is there a problem here? Yeah, well, uh, just one point at the start. When we talk about science and the, the, the history of science, as you said correctly, it's not a monolithic uh, domain. And if we look at Feyerabend and people like that, they, they explain that there's a whole range of sciences. And as well as that, if we look back around the, the 1200s, 1300s, we see, for example, that there was a very strong input in both Christianity and Islam into science. So science didn't emerge out of a vacuum from, from the scientific principles as is claimed. So a proper history of science is necessary, needs to be more holistic. But so, so of course, very few people in, in the modern world complain about scientific method, which has been hugely successful and the benefits and, and the technology that comes from there. But every benefit has a cost. And it's easy to emphasize benefits and to ignore costs. It's easy to ignore the costs associated with environmental damage, for example, or the costs associated with developing atomic bombs and the input of science into the military-industrial complex. But leave those issues about science properly so-called alone. And the issue of scientism was a term which is often associated with people like Hayek and Popper. But the idea was, was older, and it was about, it was a term used to describe the excesses of scientific method, where science, another term that you hear sometimes is scientific expansionism, 
It's an idea that science is the exclusive way of interpreting reality and that if it's not within the domain of scientific method, it is in, in some way doesn't exist. So it becomes a, a totalizing view of knowledge and an epistemology and ontology, a way of seeing the world, of knowing what we know, which becomes exclusive. It makes claims beyond scientific method itself. Uh, whereas scientific method is very successful in the domains of natural science uh, in context of predicting what's going to happen and chemical reactions. It's not so useful when it's extrapolated into social science, science for example, where we're dealing with com complex systems. So scientism uh, leads to a number of failures and a number of, of shortcomings and a number of dangers. And one of the great dangers that comes from scientism is a, a, a need or a desire to interfere in complex systems with a very simplistic viewpoint, a very uh, ob a narrow objective. And that can lead uh, to difficulties. But m the, the thing that I'm concerned about coming from a, a legal perspective is the way that scientism has become an ideology. And that ideology has in it the idea that science uh, should be the method of governance, an exclusive method of governance. And that in that exclusive method of governance, it should displace all other competing uh, ideas of governance. It should be shorn, so, so governance should be shorn of religion, spirituality, of rights, even of personhood. So that the a scientific elite will be able to control us uh, and, and again, when we, when we, people will say, well, that's a kind of conspiracy theory or it sounds like a conspiracy theory. When I seek to make these arguments, I'm generally using evidence in the public domain, uh, evidence coming from scientists, what scientists or their advocates or surrogates have said in, in published works, like J John Desmond Bernal, for example. And they have clearly stated what they see as the goal of having a scientific uh, governance system and even concepts such as cybernetics, for example, are about governance. So there are specific things we can talk about that again, but scientism refers to, in simple terms, claims made about science that can't be sustained. And when applied in the mistaken belief that they are true, can lead to a psychology and practical uh, effects uh, which cause damage and they cause damage by taking away opposing systems so it's that exclusive fundamentalism uh, which is the characteristic of an ideology as opposed to a kind of pragmatic approach in my perspective that makes scientism dangerous and the, gr the great opportunity and danger the opportunity for scientism is that it can unite as a materialist philosophy, it can unite capitalism and communism in a, a unified uh, approach uh, to governance, uh, whereby the pseudoscience, uh, the, the attachment to quantitative methods, the idea that everything uh, can be measured and what can't be measured is irrelevant and therefore you don't have to pay any attention to qualities, qualities like love or compassion or personhood, that's the dangerous thing, and the possible uh, impact of a kind of techno-totalitarian regime as anticipated by people like Gunther Anders, he believed it would be worse, having experienced Nazi Germany, he believed that such 
a system of governance, if it emerged, would be worse than than what he saw in fascist Germany. So that's that's the that's that's the context and the fear and the the, the principles. And of course, we're not talking about science. I'm not criticizing the proper science scientific method. Uh, there are major criticisms to be made about science and its lack of ethics, but that's not the primary primary emphasis. It's part of the picture, and uh, it, it's. I, I would also include in that kind of pseudo spirituality, which you know sometimes there's, there's undue emphasis on things like quantum physics by people that are preaching about spirituality, and I'm I, I'm unconvinced by their knowledge of, of of. I'd rather listen to a quantum physicist talk about quantum physics than some of the spiritual people. So there's two sides to it, as always. Yeah, science is a tool, and uh, it's a single one. And it reminds me of the expression, you know, say like science is a hammer. If all you've got is a hammer, then everything starts to look like a nail. You know, this is the one thing you have to apply to every situation. And you correctly mentioned there that that which cannot be uh, directly observed uh, or measured or and repeated experimentally it has no validity and i would say that the, the most of human experience falls into that category it's not directly observable can't be measured and can't be repeated and also the most um important experiences that we have in life fall into that category as well you mentioned love and and qualities such as beauty these ineffable things that uh we that the artists and poets uh you you again artist yourself that you struggle to capture visually or verbally or in music you know uh, but we try and uh the, the, our best efforts at interpreting those experiences tend to be in art and you we we talked about um uh, you mentioned the word materialism you know and that has two main applications in our uh, modern culture uh that not just the materialism of consumerism you know sort of being that uh being working and living for what you can get, you know, what you can be and status and possessions and all the rest of it, but also materialism as a philosophy, you know, a way of looking at the world, matter is all that matters, you know, all the five sense reality is all that there is, and science's tendency towards reductionism, uh, breaking things down to their component parts in order to understand them, um, dissecting animals to, to, to understand them, for example, Whereas many things uh, fall into the, in the, the case, of the, the expression we have is that the, the sum is greater than the whole of the parts. Or sorry, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. And many things can only really be understood in totality when you step back and look at the greater picture. And this scientific reductionism tends to see things in isolation, not in connection. Whereas cutting edge science, I know you just mentioned quantum physics, we can get onto the problems and also you know potential of that later on if you like but uh, you know, everything is in connection and nothing can truly be understood in isolation and you in the sciences you see that with uh, excess specialism you know in my view speaking as a non-scientist you know a biologist comments on uh, an issue in physics there's like oh well you just keep to your you know domain there whereas if people cross fertilized more with ideas uh, the way that artists quite often do that can lead to greater understanding. Uh, yes, uh, I, I, I agree with all that, uh, Greg. Uh, and in, in your last point, I, I, I think there has been an absence of a kind of lateral uh, approach. If we think about tartan, for example, we need, or, or in weaving context, the warp and the weft, we need things going both ways. We can't just have uh, one direction. To unite, to unite the two separate things, we need a lateral movement as well. So there has as you rightly say, because of silos, 
uh, intellectual silos and specialization, there has been a failure to unite things as they would have done in a, an earlier type of worldview. And if we go back to the Renaissance and earlier periods, there wasn't this sharp uh, focus. In some ways, it was associated with a, a degree of fragmentation with the Enlightenment, uh, and that led to this kind of uh, split. Uh, specialization is a very, very useful tool, but as you indicated, it, it means that we, we don't see the whole picture and something is lost. And if we have a com combination of materialism and physicalism and naturalism, and it leads to a very dogmatic view of how the world works. And there's a, circu a circular process or a spiral process which leads to a kind of dangerous vortex in the sense that uh, technology attracts a particular type of mind, it reflects a particular type of mind, a mind that wants to organize things and can be very successful at understanding in a symbolic, logician, mathematical approach how to organize things, like in semiconductor topography or whatever. And then with the success of, of those systems, they get applied to networks and we see processes of evolution of networks and then we see control of networks. And then those type of brains and mentalities that have been very successful in that technical domain uh, because of their specialization begin to believe that they can, as in scientism, extrapolate from their experience in commercial context or whatever and apply it to governance overall. So they begin to become uh, promoters of an idea of technical interference because they're able to develop computers. Now they, they, they believe they can interfere in complex systems like weather for a technical solution. And this idea of a technical intervention uh, becoming a preferred uh, solution by experts of a managerial class has been studied by people like Easterly. And uh, he also identifies how the technocrats and the technical interventionists are, are very happy to work in complex systems even if they don't understand them. They're also very happy to work with autocrats. Uh, for example, in the context of the, the World Bank and other international organizations that don't have a, an explicit uh, commitment to, to work with democratic re regimes. So there is an overall mindset, uh, and this is the mindset which is creating the infrastructure which we operate. So this is affecting us as well. We, we're in a reflexive relationship with this technology. So we're moving from, if you like, our connections, as you've talked about in, in, in your nice talk on the on the pub it made me a bit nostalgic for the uh, for the pub in Britain and Ireland uh, and uh, people forget how important uh, I learned an awful lot by talking to people in pubs and often people that I wouldn't have met uh, otherwise uh, I would have been presumed to be a Celtic uh, Celtic supporter in Scot Scotland coming from an Irish Catholic background but I used to go to a, a pub that was a ranger's pub, and I, I went in the door, and they'd start abusing me. <laughs> I, was, I was telling this to a, a friend in America, and they said, oh, that's terrible. And I, if, I, if I went in that door, they didn't abuse me, I'd be concerned. It was healthy banter that people engage in when they're friendly. And we, all, we had great, great fun in there. And that's the nature of a public house, which was a place uh, where anyone could come in and were equal uh, and entitled to uh, There's an old... There's a long tradition of hospitality law, for example, where generally people were considered equal in that context before they were equal in other contexts. So I miss those, those pubs. They were an arena of interaction. I met people that I may not have met in other contexts uh, and learned a lot about, uh, about different things. So, so uh, those 
context, they're often the context that we get deeper connections. Now we have to interact in the, uh, interact in the, the technosphere. So the technosphere, in, in my view, is, uh, or it's described as the technium by, by Kevin Kelly, I think, is the totality of the expanding uh, machine, uh, machine systems, the mega machine, all the technologies, and another word, technique, that are, uh, operate together, and they begin to displace both the biosphere, uh, the flora and fauna, and the ethnosphere, the, 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 the interconnections between people. So our social capital is turned into uh, economic capital in, in a tech, by technology. So instead of going to the pub, we have to talk, well, wait, wait, there's opportunities, there's always costs and benefits, but there's huge costs, so we haven't seen the costs yet. This recent pand the, the pandemic and the crisis, we're only at the stage where we have been in a, if we can compress time in, an, in, a, in a thought experiment, we've only been in a very bad restaurant and, and eaten very bad food with very bad service. We're only coming to the stage where we're going to get the bill, uh, the huge bill, uh, as we're going out the door. And as we begin to protest, we'll begin to see the, the seven-foot bouncer uh, coming in to, to enforce it. So, so uh, all these, when people are having academic discussions about nature of materialism and all these things, uh, as a pragmatist, uh, we have to, I would argue that we have to look at what the consequence of these views are. And uh, there's, a, there's a totalizing vortex of a number of issues which present us with a real danger that what we are we have entered into is what I call the empire of scientism, where we're actually entering uh, a global technocracy, uh, a global system of governance, facilitated by this technology and facilitated by the quasi-governance which has happened through the development of communications networks around the world, which will replace our existing ideas, which will regulate us without rights without a even claim to rights, and we will, we will effectively be entering what has been predicted uh, for, for 50, 70 years, a scientocracy, if you like, uh, and they result from a number of these philosophical and practical uh, principles coming in parallel. So that, that, that's my concern, uh, where those issues which you rightly identified are heading. Uh, we can't look in the rearview mirror, as they say, to tell what's going to happen in the future. We have to look at the trends, and you might say, or one might say, well, that's that's speculative, and you've no evidence for this. I, I would just point out, I, I wrote, a, I did write a book with Mr. Gillacord about my concern about technology. It was a mixture of poetry and uh, an argument about mysticism. I also wrote a novel, a complex novel. I'm not flogging it here, called Blue Lies September. It's not everyone's cup of tea. It's not, in fact, many people's cup of tea. But in that book, which was, which was I published in, in 2019. I did have London in under curfews. There was a natural disaster which led to draconian legislation concentrating in London uh, and the southeast, uh, which led to a suspension of rights, etc. Some of the things that, that subsequently happened. And my 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 writing that was consistent with a sense that this was where the thing is going. Whether you want to approach it from an esoteric or a pragmatic perspective. It was clear what was happening. And also in that, the subtext was that the crisis was being used to uh, introduce a kind of technocratic 
medicalized system. Uh, so, so that was the subtext. So, so when then the events happen, and also I was over in, 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 in New Mexico with Jeffrey Mishlove and his show in 2020 in January, just before this stuff blew up. And I, I did an interview on globalization, which is there, which where I said that the greatest, whereas in future, the groups that want globalization, for, first communism, uh, crony capitalism, uh, Catholicism has always seen itself as a, a, as a global uh, movement. But I, I, the one that I feared most was scientism. And I believed, I said in that, I believe we're moving into the end game. That was before the thing. So I, so I believe we're, we are crossed that threshold. And everything that has happened since makes me concerned. I, 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 as a lawyer, I would say, unfortunately, Greg, if you haven't noticed, you're living in what is a, a, a tyrannous situation when your rights have been uh, taken away so much. And unfortunately, it's only going to get worse. When you're going to face, as they say, 10,000 uh, people who represent a state who can knock on your door when you come back from holidays, uh, maybe on your back door, if you think about but uh, and they can test you and, and have exert powers on the behalf of the state, there's no other word for it but, but, but a tyranny, and it's unfortunate that the, the home of parliamentary democracy and, and uh, the, the country that gave us the, the Magna Carta has fallen to, to such a level where, where it's, it's been a, a flag bearer for one of these local uh, tyranny situations. But that's happened all, all around the world, and it's happened in Ireland. The lawyers are fairly silent. Uh, unfortunately, you're not going to be able to rely on lawyers because they are... Uh, I, I, I can tell you now, after hearing the silence, the deafening silence from them, that they are uh, self-interested and they're, they're not going to enforce justice or, or protect your rights. Uh, and, and this is a very dangerous, uh, a very dangerous uh, consequence of, of all these. And also, in law, you do have this idea of positivism as well, that rights only exist if they're given to you by a group, which is different from some of the older traditions, which believe that rights are inalienable, they come from divine sources, and hence they can't be taken away. Um, so there are very, very complex issues that come from some of these, uh, the concatenations of these basic ideas about materialism and physicalism that you talked about. Yes, well, we'll get into pretty much all of the points that you made just now in a little more detail shortly. Just a little a bit of housekeeping. Uh, you mentioned a video, a vlog that I did, just in case listeners are interested. Um, I did it a few months ago. It's entitled COVID-19, uh, the war on pubs. And the war on pubs was an expression that I had in my head for many years. And I'd seen other people writing about this because the pub closures, I was speaking now about the British Isles. That's really the only experience that I, that I have. But the traditional pub and its traditional role that I speak about in the video, there, it's felt like there was I mean, I use the war as something that feels like it, it's felt like in the last year and a half, but more sort of like a sort of a creeping erosion is how it characterized maybe the last 20 years. And not just a, a commercial phenomenon of pubs closing for simple business reasons, you know, people wanting to do other things with their leisure time. But it seemed like that the, the positive role of the pub as this meeting place is, you know, sharing ideas of people who are, are not from the same background coming together, all of these positive things. Uh, being eroded is just a long-term trend that I'd noticed, but it seemed to really come into focus in my mind again in the last year and a half. And I remember listening to a couple of EU bureaucrats, one of whom was Irish, actually, and they 
put out on YouTube a chat that they had in the early days of the pandemic response, the early days of lockdown. And they were very, very dismissive of the whole idea of like, you know, pub life. And I remember this Irish guy saying to his, his German or Dutch counterpart, whatever, oh, is anyone ever really going to want to go back to a bar again and stand, you know, at the bar, you know, six deep waiting to get served a pint and it was sweaty with loud music and girls and guys all pressed together. Who wants, ugh, who wants to do that? You know, sounds you know, great. I'm missing that already. <laughs> you know, but it was the revulsion and you could tell that he'd never done it. He might've done it maybe when he was a student or something, but you could tell this was a guy who just, you know, that human dimension, you know, the, the sort of the, everything to do with the body, you know, like, you know, sweat and piss and shit and, you know, and love and hate and all that stuff that makes all the stuff that transhumanists found so repulsive that he he shared a little bit of that as well. And this guy was positively glowing in anticipation that no one would ever want any type of human contact, especially God forbid with a stranger in a bar, you know, that you might brush up against another person that would all go away. So that was my concern in, in that particular video. Just talking about, uh, flipping back to talking about science again, one of the things, again, that I've often thought and read about and, and read other people who were commenting on, uh, it's this phenomenon in science that we've seen, uh, we've alluded to this, spoken about it in, in, in the last half hour or so, science being this monolithic thing, and you'll hear non-scientists, members of the public during the pandemic response, follow the science, you know, that's the thing, that's the one thing that's going to lead us out of this. Stop listening to these commentators who don't know what the hell are talking about. Listen to the scientists. But you look at the history of science, what you talked about. What about all the scientists? Let's talk about the pandemic response. What about all the scientists, qualified, highly qualified, eminent people, experts in their fields who disagree? They are using the scientific method, rigorous scientific techniques, you know, all their years and decades of experience and expertise. And they're saying, no. This is not right. This is not how I see it. I don't agree. Where we've forgotten, you know, the public has forgotten they even exist. So these scientific heretics, let's just use the religious metaphor, they're nowhere to be seen in all this. But you know as well as I do, I'm sure you've seen them, these people who are trying to speak out and offer an alternative to anything that's going on at the minute, no matter how qualified they are, no matter what their background is, they are being shut down. You know, but those those people exist. So I say, follow the science. Who, follow whose science? Follow what science? What version of science? Which is it? Which science are we supposed to follow? And then there's the idea, just to add to that, the more general idea in science, the idea of paradigm shifts. The you know the idea that the science we have now is is being gradually developing, and we're all pretty much at the apex of it. And the this vision of science will only continue to develop in the future. And again, you know as well as I do that sometimes the whole thing gets flipped on its head and the science of the past gets more or less forgotten and a new paradigm comes in. And the idea that there won't be any more uh, scientific paradigm shifts in future is, is just fantasy. That will happen. There are things we take today as, you know, that the I love fucking science crowd will swear by that will be seen as like completely wide of the mark, complete, you know, completely getting it wrong in the decades and centuries to come. There's a number of points on that. Just like, let me make it clear for if there's any of those people that, uh, you know, the, the, the science lovers that don't really actually study science and, you know, repeat it as a mantra because they've, they've got that message when they're watching Coronation Street and in between all the other programming that they subject themselves to, um, that 
just to let me make it clear in my view, I've studied it for about 50 years now, so in the time I was, I was, I was young, uh, looked at the whole issue. My family were involved in politics. I've followed it. I've been very close to some of these people that have been very significant in, in, in the evolution of, of some of the important things in, in, in the world. I've, I've been in that domain before I left. In the last year I, uh, before I left the academy, I was invited by both the Academy of European Law and the Chinese Academy of Social Science and the High Court of Beijing to talk to them. So I'm not 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 just some guy uh, from working class Dublin that doesn't understand what he's talking about. But let me make it clear to them that they are going to be slaves, or their children are going to be slaves, and their grandchildren before uh, the human race is is destroyed. That is what scientists have said and are saying. So they may sneer now uh, with their 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 own engaged brain, but you're condemning your grandchildren to slavery, imprisonment, or a human zoo, as J.D. Bernal uh, explicitly talked about in, in his book, uh, The World of Flesh and the Devil. This is what the scientists have said they are going to. So if you don't believe that science can be dangerous, maybe you should read about Unit 731 and the, the Japanese prisoner war, war crimes and what uh, scientists have done, and maybe read about Dr. Mengele, or may, maybe read about how the, the United States took some of the information that was gained in the, in the concentration camps, or look at the amount of PhDs in the Einsatzgruppen in, the mo in, in one of the most brutal uh, assassination uh, genocide squads uh, from the Nazis. Look at the, the amount of education, the amount of PhDs, the amount of scientific background. Uh, look at all, all those. Look at the Manhattan Project. Look at the uh, secrecy behind the scenes where scientists get together and make decisions about the future uh, of our lives. Look at even people who seem to not fit in the picture, like Alan Turing and, 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 and what became of him when he didn't seem to be singing off the same, same uh, hymn sheet. So uh, the idea that science is this innocuous rational force that has existed and has come independently and that it was these noble scientists that that didn't come from any intellectual background is uh, is wrong. And the, to use scientific explanation from your pub context uh, that, that you've elaborated in, in your blog, uh, we would go back to behavioral science and we would look at the work of Milgram and Ash and we would look at the, uh, the use of scientific experiments in behaviorism to identify how they make people conform. And one of the best ways to make people conform is to isolate them from their fellows. Because when people are isolated from their fellows, they're more willing to uh, take propaganda. So the pubs is the pub is a, is, is a context, a space, even a political space, where people can go and interact and change and have their views uh, altered. It's it's almost a scientific uh, interaction between different views, a practical. A pragmatic way of exchanging views, discursive of finding truth, a dialectical approach, uh, and the what has happened, making people stay at home, uh, making people not socialize, is totally consistent with the lessons they've learned from all these behavioral uh, science experiments, which were largely done not to for, to be able to entertain you and when you're reading the newspaper sometime, but really to to know how this new empire, the evolving empire of scientism, would be able to work. And everything is consistent with making people uh, live in an atomized way. And you're talking about the, the Irish politician, 
Uh, I don't recognize, or I'm, I'm sorry to say, I, I don't recognize the political class. There was a change in my lifetime. I saw it happening around me. Uh, and uh, there was a great divorce from what was a very uh, local democratic system. Uh, and associated with that is a terrible pandering towards international forces, a terrible failure to recognize the valuable things that were there, a, a terrible undemocratic uh, attachment. Uh, and to, to, to balance it a bit, so we won't get too depressed, just on another pub context, I was in the pub one night in Dublin, and I took the fellow beside me, I said, I recognize him, and I was, it was the actor William Defoe. And what was funny, he was sitting there drinking the pint of Guinness, he was talking about, about I think it was The English Patient, some other film director. And uh, I was thinking, he, he also played Jesus Christ in, 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 uh, in, in a film, the, this actor. So you, you're recognizing the face, and, and he has also uh, acted Jesus Christ. I was in a, another pub in Dublin one night, and I saw Gabriel Byrne, and Gabriel Byrne has, has uh, represented Satan. So he was drinking a pint of Guinness. So in, a, in Dublin pubs, I have seen Satan and Jesus, and they were both drinking mm -hmm. pints of Guinness. And it reminds me of Nicholas Kazantzakis, who said that the doors to heaven and hell are adjacent and identical. <laughs> so, yeah. Oh, very good. Well, you were talking about more or less the crimes of science. You know, you mentioned, amongst other people, Joseph Mengele. I recently, I've just recorded an interview with a couple of guests who are coming out in about a week. But we were talking about science fiction at one point. And it's interesting about the portrayal of heroes and villains and science in popular science fiction. Because you take, for example, Star Trek. Now, if I remember rightly, Scotty, I think he's the guy who's always down in the engine room. He's a human character. You know, he's relatable. You can imagine having a pint of Guinness with him or maybe a scotch. But it's Spock that is the representative of scientism in that crew, if you see I me, mean, the cold, calculating, applying science to everything, like, you know, uh, love, Captain, you know, what is love? This is not logical, you know, that type of thing. Yes, and yeah. You think of how often, as much as science, particularly in utopian science fiction, you know, that science itself it has got the central role and the scientists are the heroes because they're the ones that are launching us to the stars and, and paving the way to the utopian future. But how often in some of the... Uh, the most well-known uh, science fiction stories that the scientists or the scientific division or element are actually the villains of the piece. Again, in Star Trek, Spock is cold and calculating. Now, he, of course, is uh, basically, uh, you know, he's Vulcan, but he's a, he's a good character. You know, he, he's, he's with the crew and he helps them. Uh, but Kirk is kind of like the beating heart of all that. And you think of something like, you know, Alien or Aliens, you know, albeit the, the scientific division there, they're... Um, androids, so they're not human, but the scientific division is represented very much along the, the lines, you know, the worst parts of science, you know, the most single-minded, pursue our goals at the, at any cost, apply our methods to everything at any cost kind of element. Whereas the, you know, even the military parts in, the, in these stories are seen as human and heroic and warm and relatable and everything else. So I think that's that's quite interesting. And I think for a lot of people, there's a, there is a there is a bit of a psychological conflict, a bit of cognitive dissonance, because they, they, they really get it when they see scientists in these stories completely out for their own, very 
single-minded, narrow-minded, um, inhuman, even if they are human. And yet we have, and you see the struggle in the, in the, in the real world, so-called now during the pandemic of scientists trying to present themselves publicly as relatable figures and as people that uh, that we should listen to, but not just because of don't just trust the figures, but you know, hey, you know, we're we're one of you sort of thing, and and like um, Anthony Fauci, however you pronounce him, you know, the whatever yes, yeah. over in the US, and and how he come, how badly he comes across as a mouthpiece uh, for science. So it's just that's very interesting to me because uh, of course our our fictional. Our stories, they're, they say a lot about our ideas. They, 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 they stem from our ideas about life, the universe and everything, our society and, yes. and meaning and purpose. And they also feed into it as well. Uh, yeah. So, you know, it's a circular situation. That concludes part one of our interview. Part two will be available soon in the subscribers area at legalizefreedom.com. Legalizefreedom.com. <laughs>